You're listening to the Sill Podcast, perspectives on art and technology with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 12 is based on a published article entitled Opinion The U.S. Economy Will Never Have Another Golden Age. Warriors brought a tremendous shift in population. Fifteen million Americans had packed up their music and their accents and their attitudes and moved from the country to the city, from the south to the north, from the east to the west. By the millions, they left their farms and small towns to find work, and many stayed where they found it. Peter Noche here, and my friend and co-host Harry Posner will be noticeably absent from our usual recording today, as his temporarily weakened vocal cords return to normal. In keeping with the art and technology theme, today I've selected to record a recent article, which includes the effects of our rapidly changing technologies, which contribute to the writer's opinion that the U.S. economy will never have another golden age. The article ran on MarketWatch on September 1st. Although the article is written by an American and his particular view on the current state of his country Many parallels to us here in Canada can be drawn. After all, we do share the longest international border in the world between two countries at about 5,500 miles when you include the just over 1,500 miles that separate the state of Alaska and Canada. The U.S. presently our most significant trading partner, directly impacting our economy and all that goes with it. Despite some of our innate differences, we continue to have much in common with our southern neighbors and take an obviously direct and profound interest in their political landscape. Since the election of Donald Trump, which according to surveys in Canada, stunned and befuddled, to put it mildly, most Canadians, social and political awareness has risen to unprecedented levels here and abroad. Although I'm definitely not a Trump supporter, I can't say I was stunned by his rise or his eventual appointment as President of the U.S., My personal concern, based on my view that governments generally reflect the people they govern, is what I saw and see as a larger symptom of the socioeconomic ailments, which largely began after World War II, which is where the article begins. The post-war economic boom has created expectations that can't be met. The war brought big government to America. Never before had Washington employed so many people or exercised so much direct control over the personal lives of individual American citizens. Rationing ended when the war ended. Wage and price controls were lifted, but not the income tax. The War Department changed its name and continued to spend the taxpayers' money for defense. The bar was reset during what many considered to be the golden age of the U.S. economy, that quarter century between 1948 and 1973, when the U.S. reigned supreme, manufacturing flourished, and the American middle class prospered. During those 25 years, real gross domestic product, or GDP, rose an astonishing 169%. Employment increased by 75%, and manufacturing jobs by 30%, while per capita personal income almost doubled. 
people of all incomes and education levels could live the so-called American dream and came to believe that being an American meant your children and grandchildren were almost guaranteed to be better off than you were. It was, in retrospect, an impractical dream, which ended with the Arab oil embargo and the great inflation of the 1970s, followed by the deep recession of the early 1980s. What came next were a technological revolution and a transformation of corporate America that eliminated the American dream for millions and created the anxious, uncertain economy we live in now, in which too many people long to bring back a lost world that can't, according to this writer, be restored. Which brings me to the issues I alluded to regarding technology in my opening observations. Looking back at that era, it becomes quickly evident the enormous impact it had on how Americans still think about the economy and the importance of the need to understand those effects to move forward. Post-World War II Big business got bigger during the war. With increased capital, production capacity, and new technology, American industry was in a position to dominate the post-war domestic and world markets. America owned 50% of the world's material assets for a time. Bigness changed America's small towns. The neighborhood grocer gave way to the new, impersonal, cost-efficient supermarket. Before the war, 23% of the American people lived on farms. 50 years later, just 2%. Many American farm families were replaced by corporations. Something called the agribusiness took hold. The great post-war boom seemed inevitable, only in hindsight. It's true that Europe and Japan were in ruins, while the American mainland was untouched by World War II, and the arsenal of democracy that built the tanks and planes that won the war had U.S. factories in high gear. But there was a great concern about what more than 10 million GIs would do when they came home. And as industry converted back to civilian production, there were big questions about who would buy the goods they manufactured. In the words of United Auto Workers President Walter Ruther, written in the New York Times magazine in September 1945, the war has proven that production is not our problem. Our problem is consumption. We have found it impossible to sustain a mass purchasing power capable of providing a stable market for the products of 20th century technology. Wartime wage and price controls lingered, causing workers to fall behind. And unions flexed their muscles, with more than 2 million workers going on strike in the winter of 1945-46. Meanwhile, the Truman administration tried and failed to create a national health system. The stars were aligned for a new social contract, which Ruther and far-seeing General Motor President Charles Wilson forged in 1950. Called the Treaty of Detroit, it gave GM labor peace for five years and complete control of production in exchange for cost-of-living wage increases and, this was new, medical and pension funds for its blue-collar workforce. Other industries, unionized or not, followed suit. In the words of Ruther's biographer Nelson Lichtenstein, the political impasse drove American trade unionists toward negotiation of their own firm-centered welfare state. 
Workers' higher standard of living and the Cold War with the Soviet Union ignited the greatest consumer economy the world had ever seen. Massive national and local highway building led to the explosion of the suburbs, and the suburban dream of a stable job and a house with a white picket fence became the proverbial American dream. As veterans of World War II and Korea sent their baby boomer kids to well paying factory jobs or to college in record numbers, permanent affluence had become an American birthright, even an entitlement. The Stagnant 70s. In the fall of 1973, it all came crashing down when, in the wake of the Yom Kippur War, Arab oil producing countries instituted an embargo against the U.S. for supporting Israel. Oil prices quadrupled to $12 a barrel, and coupled with subsequent price increases throughout the 1970s, which stoked already simmering inflationary fires, the Consumer Price Index, or CPI, rose 10% in early 1974. As gasoline prices soared, Japanese and German auto manufacturers fully recovered from the war, sold smaller, fuel-efficient vehicles, while the complacent Big Three was producing gas-guzzling boats. By 1977, Americans were now buying 2 million imported vehicles a year. Still, manufacturing employment kept rising throughout the 1970s, peaking at 19.6 million in June of 1979, but inflation was way out of control, and Federal Reserve Chairman Paul Volcker pushed the federal funds rate to an all-time high of 19.1% in June of 1981. That crushed inflation, but caused the deep recession of 1981-82. Profits above all else. Following that recession, the personal computer revolution brought advanced analytical tools to office desktops. The academic idea that a corporation's sole mission was to create shareholder value became a potent weapon in the hands of corporate raiders like T-Bone Pickens and Carl Icahn, who dethroned CEOs of prominent companies. The bottom line became everything. Foreign competition was fierce, and big U.S. corporations could no longer afford to be private welfare states. They cut benefits and shed jobs to boost earnings and share prices. Steady, well-paying jobs with good benefits became increasingly rare because they were economically unsustainable. And technology enabled employers to outsource work to developing economies like Mexico and China. Meanwhile, a digital revolution was moving the U.S. from an industrial economy to one based on services, technology, and leisure. Since 1990, manufacturing had lost 5 million jobs, while professional and business services, healthcare, and restaurants had added 25 million. This created low unemployment and good job growth, but minuscule wage increases and minimal job security. The skills that got people good middle-class jobs two generations ago just won't cut it anymore. Unfortunately, too many Americans, especially those in areas where mines and factories were shuttered, still feel they deserve the jobs of yesteryear. But no matter who's president, those well-paying, unskilled jobs won't come back and give them the middle-class life to which they believe they are, there's no other word for it, entitled. Entitled. 
In closing, the post-war American boom was a golden age for millions, but it came out of unique circumstances that will never be repeated. Unfortunately, it spoiled too many Americans to think that's the way things would always be. As the old song goes, yesterday's gone. Time to move on. The Sill Podcast, Perspectives on Art and Technology, is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at ConnectingDotsMedia.com.